You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about Redemption Hill Church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org. It's a fine line between heresy and orthodoxy, and we're here to keep you on the straight and narrow. You're listening to Corn Feed Theology. All right, everyone, Pastor Sean here, back at you with a, another Cornfield Theology, and I have a very, very, very special guest. Can I add another very to that, my friend? I was going to say, I feel like there weren't enough. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think about, I was thinking about, you know, leading up to this particular podcast, and it was you who helped get the Cornfield Theology podcast off the ground. You're the one who came up with the, what yes. I think is a corny little tune at the beginning. I, I tend to like it. I think you and I were the ones who brainstormed about the initial podcast name. Yeah, I, it was my idea. The name was. Yeah, it was good. And so I, you're the I, brainchild of everything. I purchased and the music and I made, and I made the, uh, the podcast cover that I think, yeah. might be, did, did it change now? I think uh, we, yeah, we did change it. We, uh, I'm not going to say it was an upgrade, but, uh, you know, it's just a re a rebrand. You downgraded it. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, my friend here is Brooks Sevchek. So if you are a newer listener, you're used to hearing the voice of Logan Kane. Um, so some context here is one of my best friends in the world. Logan yeah. Kane. So when we planted a redemptional church located in the Des Moines Metro, Brooks and Logan, both, uh, came along with the church plan from the Twin Cities, and uh, for quite a while, I think you were here about a year and a half, Brooks. Two years. Two years. Two years. Mm-hmm. You were here. You were pastoral intern along with Logan, and then you left me. You left Logan. I saw a greener pasture. Saw so. the greener pasture, and then you got married. What I thought was the greener pasture. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> and you back up in the Twin Cities. Yes, the Twin Cities. Uh, for anyone who's who's thinking about moving uh please don't come to the twin cities just Why? For your own sake. it is the absolute worst place in the united states if you're thinking of moving des moines is such a beautiful city with so much to do and so nice people um in a great church if you're thinking yeah. of moving somewhere in the midwest um if you're even familiar with the midwest as as a a, a land uh move to des moines don't yeah to- thanks for the plug man Appreciate yeah. that. So, uh, so for those who don't know you, can you give a background, um, your education and where you work? So what you do professionally? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, I am currently going to school full-time at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. I've been pursuing my MDiv for what feels like, uh, <laughs> since the, since the Lord Jesus came and incarnated in the, uh, first advent, you're going to be doing years the second ago. advent. Um, but Lord willing, I'll graduate in a little less than a year. So I'll have an MDiv with an emphasis in biblical counseling, Lord willing. Um, and I currently work as the marketing manager at Bethany Global University, which is a, a small Christian college in Bloomington, Minnesota, that is solely focused on training missionaries to to go out and share their faith with the mm-hmm. nations. Yeah. Um, so it's actually a really, really great group of people, a great job. Yeah. Um, and then kind of along the same lines, I, I wear a different hat of uh, being the editor in chief of just disciple which is a publication that we have um yep. bgu yeah which is also a website that our website cornfieldtheology.com links to when we find good articles so when we see stuff good stuff on uh, places like just disciple we want to get that information to our listeners and to those who read our blogs and use our resource section so i commend that to you so yeah that's been a project we've been working on 
Um, but but yeah, that's that's kind of just a snapshot of where where I'm at currently. I did I was at Redemption Hill for two years. Um, if if I can say this without hurting any feelings, my favorite church I've I've ever been a part of, and I I miss them dearly. Oh, we miss you um, too, man. So especially Logan and I keep razzing you to come back, come back to the motherland. Dude, you know me. Just keep saying it, and maybe someday it'll happen. (laughs) No. Well, um, one fun fact before we get into today's topic, uh, you recently had a wedding, and I was the officiant, which was a great honor. Oh yeah, I I am not accustomed to saying this in the beginning of podcasts and stuff, but I'm married to Hannah, uh, Hannah Subcheck, my wife. Uh, We've been married for about two months now and it's yeah it's fantastic i really love her with my whole heart so our relationship is is very interconnected and um great affection for you miss you oh yeah we still pray for you to come back and bring and obviously bring hannah with (laughs) yeah of course (laughs) yeah of course well we have been talking kind of offline yourself uh logan to some degree and myself about a particular theological issue that I would say maybe four years ago now, it really hit the evangelical scene. And uh, all of a sudden there were blogs written on the topic. There were some books written and uh, it kind of came out of nowhere in terms of it kind of picking up steam, but it does have some historical precedent in terms of a conversation. And it's about the eternal functional subordination of the sun, right? EFS or the ESS debate, eternal subordination of the sun, depending on who you talk to, they're going to use some different language. And I'm going to just frame the, the, the main question, Brooks, and then I'll let you, um, you know, chime in. The, the main question at hand is the Son of God subordinate, eternally subordinate to the Father. And so that's the debate. And there are some people, I, and, and you and I will talk about this at the end, where we diverge on where we land on the issue about eternal subordination. But there's some who would believe that if you hold to one view over the other, you're delving into you're 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 putting your big toe into potential heresies. Now, for certain, I can see where you can take any position too far, where you get get on the heretical you know bandwagon. Um, but you know, we're not as much interested as in in you know where's the heresy at, although we will mention them. But talking about uh, defining the debate, uh, we want to talk about what we agree upon. And then we'll kind of a third category at the end. We'll talk about, you know, where we would disagree on the conversation. And I do think generally speaking, and especially with talking with you, because you take a much more nuanced view than say Bruce Ware, Wayne Grudem, um, you're on much safer ground in my eyes uh, because of some of the nuances you have in terms of understanding this particular issue. Yeah, I think also just important to say with regards to like the current conversation, the pro position when it comes to eternal subordination is typically labeled um, as a heresy by a lot of a lot of its um, critics. Right. But the anti-eternal subordination position is not really, at least I haven't really seen it labeled a heresy very much. It tends to be like anti-eternal subordinationists are going to be pretty against, hard against the eternal subordination view. Yeah. And then proponents of it, there are definitely some who are who are you know passionate about it, but they tend to be like that's just the the way it is. It's just a yeah. difference of, of, I guess how it how the conversation has yeah. felt to me. Um, but but that is scary, you know. As someone like I would I would not be afraid to say I believe in the eternal subordination of the sun. Um, I I kind of hesitate to say that because you know the Lord reproves my heart and I've, I've changed mm. views on some things over time. So. You know, five years from now, I hope I don't look back and say, what the heck was I talking about? Yeah, sure. Um, 
but you know, I hesitate to say that because I, there are so many faithful brothers and sisters who are not not um, ill intent when they say, you know, that that's that's heretical, um, mm-hmm. and not all. No one would call all eternal subordinationists heretical. I don't think, mm-hmm. um, and not all people who are against it would would just throw heresy out just everywhere, you know, on everything. Right. Um, but there are some pretty there are some pretty heavy um, critics. I believe it was Carl Truman who who said that anyone who holds to an ESS position or eternal subordination position should uh, be kicked out of sem- their seminaries and churches. <laughs> like, wow, he said that. Like I, didn't know that. Be... I, knew, I knew where he was at on the issue, but I didn't realize yeah. he said that. Yeah, he, he's quite he basically, strong. You shouldn't be, yeah, you, you shouldn't be teaching in seminary. You shouldn't be pastoring a church. Um, so very, very interesting <laughs> debate. I guess that might not be a great way to frame it, but um yeah. But yeah, I, it's a, it's important to me just to open up the Bible, ask what does the Scripture say, um, yeah. primarily, and and I want that I want the Scripture to govern how I understand God, how I understand the Trinity, um, and the beautiful relationships between the persons of the Trinity, um, and, and also just the unified work of God. Mm-hmm. You know, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Yeah. Um, from Deuteronomy six. So I want to look at that. And then I also, you mentioned history. Um, while this hasn't been a conversation forever, there it's not like we haven't been talking about the Trinity and the economy of the Trinity. The oh, way yeah. The Trinity. I mean, Versus- you get the Council of Nicaea, which was born out of the fact that we got to combat some heresy, Arianism yeah. in particular. So 325 AD, then you got 381 AD with the, with the, uh, uh, the Council of Constantinople. We have the Nicaea Constantinopolitan Creed, which mm-hmm. is for the clarifying, um, you know, the, the Godhead. And so, yeah, it's a conversation that goes back all the way to the beginning. You know, we can we talk, talk about what we read in our new Testament, right. First century type stuff. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. Cause you know, I've read a lot of arguments um, for and against the eternal subordination position, and they typically draw from the same people. And so <laughs> you'll see both of them use Augustine to support oh, yeah. their position. I saw that. Both yeah. of them use the Nicene Creed to support their position. Yep. It's very interesting. Yeah. So, yeah, I agree. I, I was reading, you know, two camps were both quoting Augustine. Uh, one particular, we'll mention the name right now in the book, is Matthew Barrett. He'd be against eternal functional subordination of the sun. He'd be against ESS. He, he was, does not see the sun as subordinate uh, um, eternally. Mm-hmm. And so he quotes Augustine. And then I saw in your paper, in which I'll just commend to people, and I'll put a link in the, in the box here that you can read uh, from Brooks's website, he was quoting folks who were quoting Augustine, you know, and then there everyone's quoting the Nicene Creed, as as you point out. So yeah. it, it is interesting. I, I, you know, I'm persuaded that Augustine's saying something that um, that is not in line with what Grudem and Ware are saying. But we'll we'll get to that. Mm-hmm. What I do think is important in having this particular conversation is that language is important. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, we shy away from making a metaphor out of, you know, the Trinity, for example, you know, you have a three leaf clover or something. You got the different stages of, you know, water and steam and ice and all that kind of stuff, all that kind of nonsense that just leads you into heresy. Um, but language is important and language and, and the early church fathers knew this. And so what both camps are going to talk about is how language has informed their view of God. So we would say in English terms, they were obviously using Greek terms that God is, um, one in essence or nature, but three persons, right? And so that that kind of helps inform what they under how they understand God. 
So in, in light of that, we, we kind of come to a starting point of, well, we're using some of the same words. Now we're really getting into some of the nuances in terms of the eternal subordination of the sun. So Brooks, let me ask you a question. How do you, how do you understand the place of church history in this discussion? Yeah, I think that I would be wary to, to start at a place that isn't founded on church history. Um, so we were talking, you mentioned Augustine before, and how you said you're convinced reading him that a lot of people who are pro-ESS are, are kind of taking his words to mean something that he didn't intend them to mean in a lot of ways. And I, and I actually agree with that because uh, for Augustine, the doctrine of eternal generation, I mm-hmm. think, was foundational um, yeah. to his understanding of, of the economy of the Trinity. I think it was foundational Eterni- to Nicaea, too. Yes, and and to equate eternal generation with eternal subordination uh, would be wrong. I think that would be a false um, equivalence that's that could be sometimes made. But at the same time, um, we can take the doctrine of how the persons have how uh, the persons of the Trinity relate to one another from Augustine, and we build upon that. Uh, same thing with Nicaea. We we don't we don't want to move away from Nicaea. We want to continue to to understand the depth at, within Nicaea, and this is how theology typically works um, throughout the history of the church. Is we're kind of building upon a foundation, uh, yeah. but we are continually building and learning more and finding new ways to talk about things because cultures change, uh, controversies change, mm-hmm. new needs arise. And so we're not actually, what would be completely wrong is when cultures change to change with the culture. Right. Um, but would be, what would be helpful is when we take the foundation that we've laid and we continue to, to, to build off of that in a way that's, that's uh, just informing us as we continue to, to learn and study. Right. Um, so for example, I think the doctrine of the Trinity has, has been, been expounded upon over time. And it started with Nicaea. It started with the early church councils, um, and as and we've found, we've we found ways to exp- to explain the Trinity, talk about the Trinity. I mean, I'm trying to think of a good example. The Puritans, right? The Puritans, 16, 1700 years, uh, 1700 years after um, after the return of Christ to to heaven, the ascension of Christ, mm-hmm. have have now codified a lot of the ways that we talk about the economy of the Trinity mm-hmm. um, and ways that we didn't have until then. And that's not to say they were in any way against the early church. You know, they built upon the foundation of the early church to continue to, to learn and uh, go in depth in the Bible. And that's just generally true of, of any kind of thing that you do. Right. Yeah. So Isaac Newton was making scientific discoveries um, that that we couldn't make discoveries now unless we had Isaac Newton's foundation, but no one's rediscovering gravity, right? right? Yeah, it's always been there. <laughs> um, and so a- academically, I that's what you one get way in, that what you get into a little bit academically, we just call it historical theology. It's just kind of the development yes. of doctrine, you know, year over year, generation over generation, thinker yes. over thinker. And so that uh, that is certainly the case when we talk about the Trinity or the DT Christ, or even take something else like um, the development of baptism. You know, the Credo mm-hmm. Baptists are going to have their view of historical theology of how they got into their point by looking through the lens of church history. Same thing with Credo yeah. Baptists, et cetera. Yeah. And you know what? I am a Credo Baptist, and I would say we are not in agreement with the majority of yeah, uh, church true. history. Yeah. And and I'm comfortable saying that. I'm also, I, 
I'm also a charismatic. I believe in the continuation of the gifts and, right. and, yep. and Paul's command to the church of God's command to the churches to pursue them. And in that way, I'm also not in line with a lot of church history. That's not to say that, um, that I disregard church history at oh, all. Of course not. Um, but that's, it's just the, the Bible is our, is our ultimate yeah. source. Um, and so I, I want to very carefully, very carefully, um, take what I read in the Bible, see how it's developed throughout history and make a biblical decision about what I believe. Yeah. Does so that make sense? Yeah, it does. And certainly the scripture is our final authority. Um, mm-hmm. But let's get into the the details here. Um, the nature of the debate is, is the son eternally subordinate to the father? Um, that's just the big picture. Now let's talk about what we agree upon. And um, there are some who are having the conversation who would hold to that um, God has three wills, right? Each person of the Trinity has a will. We would we would disagree with that. We would reject that. There's one will with God as, that is within his, ontologically speaking, it's within his nature, correct? Correct. Yeah. So there are people, I don't think all, I don't think that all people who hold to us eternal subordination. No, but that camps out there. I mean, I mean, it was but there are definitely Bruce Ware at one point, and maybe he's retracted that. Yeah. That he held that position and... I, I, I am very, I'm not going to throw down the heresy thing yet. Cause I don't know the guy personally, but that's troubling. If that, if, if yeah. you that position, I, th- I, I would be willing to throw down the word heresy for that. Um, All right, let's do it. Heresy. It depends on how you define heresy. Yeah. If, you, if heresy means like a, 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 you've completely left the Christian faith and then no, but right. if it means you completely left all of Christian tradition, then yeah. Um, I, I do not believe that God has three wills. I believe that, that to say that each person within the Trinity has a separate or unique will would be to divide the nature and, and essence of, of the Trinity. Um, and so what I guess what I, I would encourage people who believe and see eternal subordination in the scriptures is uh, don't, don't take that view. There's, that is not a logically consistent view. It doesn't logically follow that just because there is functional subordination between the persons of the Trinity um, that there are separate wills. Right. So, yeah. Nope. That's that's good to clear that one up right away. Cause then we're headed toward heresies like Sibelianism or even tritheism. Yeah. A subordinationism itself is, is considered a, a heresy. Um, yeah. and I think most, if not all, um, proponents that at least all that I've read of eternal subordination would also call subordinationism a heresy, right. um, which is unique because it divides the nature of well, God. That is, yeah. So it's not dividing the persons, it's three persons, but it's dividing the nature of God, the essence of God, right? Yeah. So that's where the heresy lies. Right. So we, we agree upon that um, as one will um, within the essence of God or the nature of God. The yeah, other- I would also just say even a little bit more foundationally might be important to say, mm-hmm. we believe we believe in one God, the triune God, who exists mm-hmm. in three persons, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Um, and just in agreement with with church history and with the creeds, we don't we don't confound the persons of the Trinity. We don't divide the essence of the Trinity. Um, we we believe in the historical biblical doctrine yeah. of the Triune God. Right? So yes, exactly. And so another point where we agree upon is the eternal generation of the Son. And so yep. the Son is begotten of the Father. That's a language that many of our English New Testament ha- has jettisoned. We got to go back to the King James, but I think that word "begotten" is really important. 
Um, but that, but I think that language is actually really important that the son is begotten and eternal and, and, and the son is eternal. Um, yeah. And it being father. eternally begotten, yeah. it's, it's a, it's a continual, he was being begotten from eternity past and he will continue being begotten until eternal eternity future. Um, there are some who hold to eternal subordination who reject eternal generation. Interestingly, I've ran into one theologian who rejects both, um, mm or at least did at one point, Millard Erickson, who's a, who's an amazing theologian. Yeah, um, a systematic theology that has been used for quite a while, big textbook. But I'm not certain. I just, yeah, I, I would say, I would say it's very unwise to reject eternal generation because that is like pulling out something from the foundational uh, doctrines of the Trinity. Hmm. Like our understanding of, of the economy of the Trinity is built upon eternal generation. Um, and so it would kind of be to take, to take the bottom Jenga block off of the, <laughs> off of the yeah. game of Jenga, you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, which can just topple your whole ideology. Um, and, and, and eternal generation is biblical, I believe. So again, I, I would encourage all people don't yeah. reject the doctrine of eternal generation. In fact, I think it's important to study it and understand it deeply study Augustine on the Trinity. Yeah. I, I, I know we've talked about Augustine a few times, but I just want to say Augustine's doctrine of the Trinity is what has been the standard for Christians um, since Augustine. And in his English, book, his book is called On the Trinity. Yeah, his his book is called On On the Trinity in Latin, mm -hmm. De Trinitate, which is for if you, there are some places you buy it that that's still the title. Yeah. Um, even though it's an English translation. But man, it's a complex book. Um, but Augustine codified. He put into writing what Christians believe. Um, it, it in the very early church. So. I would encourage going to read him if you want to understand eternal generation. And also, if you're if you really wanted to dive into eternal generation, uh, get Matthew Barrett's book, Simply Trinity. Clearly, Matthew Barrett and I, I think, would have a few uh, disagreements on eternal subordination. Um, but yeah, I'll put a link to that not below. That, as well. Not that many. I think a lot of what he what he went after with eternal subordination is not necessarily what I believe. Um, but. <laughs> Um, but he does a really beautiful job explaining eternal generation and why this is yes, so important yes. to the faith. So I would definitely go grab that book if you're interested in this conversation at all. Yeah. Next point where we agree, um, the son of God um, was subordinate, submitted to the father at his incarnation. Yes. Yeah. Um, so you see this, I think, very clearly in the scriptures that Jesus Christ um was subordinate gospel of john in particular the one thing i love about the gospel of john is that he really weaves in the oneness of god in the beginning was the word and the word was with god and the word was god you know and then you have you know kind of woven in throughout john's gospel jesus in his earthly ministry and um his willing subordination to to the father yeah it's just really clear so that's a point of agreement yeah i mean just the garden of gethsemane Jesus prays. He says, not what I will, but what you will. Yeah. Um, and, and so I, I don't know how you can get more clear than that. But then also you see, like you're saying throughout the gospel of John, um, not only does Jesus, Jesus submit to the will of the father, um, but he's, he speaks of himself as coming from the father. Um, so the, you know, John three sixteen, the most famous verse in the Bible, God loved the world in this way. He gave, he gave his one and only son. Mm. Um, and, and, and so I, I think that that is a, you'll see it throughout the gospel of John because it's, it's a belief that is really ingrained within John's theology. 
Yeah. Um, it's actually a very important doctrine to understand the theology behind the gospel of John. Mm. Um, so, so yeah, I think that that's, that's a really important point that we, we both agree um, that Jesus was subordinate in the incarnation. Yeah. And it's on those passages also, while we agree on this point, and we'll get to the, the distinctions between you and I, perhaps, it's also in these same passages where we ask the question, was the subordination of the son to the father in Jesus' earthly ministry equivalent to an eternal subordination? And there's going to be a, perhaps a disagreement there, which we'll, which we'll get to. So that's kind of the cliffhanger of like, okay, what does this mean for eternal subordination? Well, that's where a lot of the debate can be surrounded on. We talk about exegesis of this particular debate while we're looking at scripture. Are there other any are there any other points of agreement, Brooks, that we've talked about in terms of our our views on this? Those are the three main ones that kind of came to my mind as I was, you know, kind of preparing and thinking through our previous conversations. I think one other point of agreement that we will have um, is around complementarianism. And oh yes. Yeah. So can I, can I set you up for this one? And then I'll yeah, let you explain ahead. it. So one thing Barrett does a really good job of is that he talks about the, how the Trinity has become social. Um, so basically it's like, okay, how do we view the world? And then we work backwards and try to understand God. And so he, he goes through various examples throughout church history, how um, the Trinity has been leveraged and explained through social means. And, um, I'm, I was quite alarmed. Some of it I knew, some of it I didn't know. And so we agree on this point that we shouldn't be doing that. Like you have to think about when you have this conversation, you must think about who God is before he created everything. That's where we're at. And then you work forward. <laughs> so that leads us to a more modern day social explanation of the Trinity that's been propagated out there that we both wholeheartedly reject. And you can go ahead and explain what that is. Yeah. A lot of people who are in support of eternal subordination um, use complementarianism as an argument for eternal subordination. Um, the two doctrines have become really greatly interlinked uh, for some reason in this conversation. Yeah, yeah. Um, if you're unfamiliar, I'm guessing most of you are familiar, but if you're not, complementarianism um, is, is a doctrine within Christianity that God has created male and female uh, ontologically equal and yet with, with unique distinct roles and callings. Mm -hmm. Um, so right. men are called, and at the very least, complementarians will agree, men are called to, to lead the church. And uh, men are called to be pastors, women are not. Head of the household, uh, things like that. Yeah. And, and then, yeah, and, the, and then in marriage as well, men are called to lead their families and, and sacrificially uh, love their wives. Yeah. Um, so Ephesians 5 would be the one of the passages. Okay, so let's, yeah, let's talk about components go to to make this social connection. You guys are probably familiar with Ephesians 5. Um, this is where we start to talk about um, wives submit to your husbands and, and husbands love your wives. And then it <laughs> Ephesians 5, Paul connects that to Christ and the church. Yeah. Right? He it's says, so plain. It's a mystery. But if you, if, you, if you look at this mystery, what I'm actually talking about is Christ and the church because Christ loved the church and sacrificially gave himself up for her as he's calling husbands to do. And uh, wives submit to their husbands as the church submits to Christ, who is the head of the church, right? Somehow, and I'm not sure where, <laughs> that analogy has turned from Christ and the church yeah. to Christ and the Father. <laughs> and right. So now we're like, now it's like husbands submit to your wives as Christ exegesis. submits to the Father. <laughs> like, where did that come from? So, so 
I think that that's that's part of it. Not not all. I I don't know why I keep saying this, but it's important, I guess. Not all not all uh, proponents of eternal subordination will look at that passage and and connect Christ. But and some the of the main players on the issue, have, yeah, some of them have. I mean, it's in Grudem's systematic theology. Maybe I know he's retracted or restated a few things in his newest updated one. But if you have one of his older ones, that's in there. Owen mm -hmm. Strand, who we both appreciate and love, and and Owen and Strand was perhaps, young theologians. Owen Strand's Owen Strand was the most surprising to me that he did that. Yeah, likewise. When he he did it in a in a blog article he wrote on Pathios. Yep. And I greatly greatly respect Owen Strand. Agreed. Um. So, like on ninety nine point nine percent of everything, we're like, yeah, but exactly. I was like this thing. It's like what? And I agreed with most of that article that he wrote as well because mm. you know I agree with his position on eternal subordination. Um, but just it's that it's that one point where complementarianism is linked. Here's here's what I believe and what I don't believe. I believe that when we're talking about complementarianism and, and eternal subordination, the term subordination or the term submit, um, those are the same word. So how we define that will definitely affect the other. How we define a, a submission within the marriage relationship is going to affect how we understand submission within the relationship between Christ and the father. And so I think we can look at that and say, look, the husband and wife are equal and they submit to one another. So biblical submission does not mean inequality. What I don't believe is that one actually points and proves the other. Some people that, and this is what, this is the thing that I really disagree with. Some people will like take complementarianism and say, if, if God has called men and women to be equal and yet have different roles, then there's also, that's just a reflection of who he is in the Trinity. He's telling right. us something about himself that is no that connection is not in the bible it's not no. in the bible anywhere no. um so complementarianism just to be clear is not an argument in any way for eternal subordination it's just not um they they are related i'm not saying they're completely unrelated they deal with some similar terms um but they are but they, they neither one is an argument for the other yeah agreed so there's actually a lot we agree upon um, those are four solid categories, you know, the one will of God, the, the social aspect of, of, of uh, using the Trinity, you're trying to understand the eternal subordination of the son, if you agree with that. Um, and so uh, there were two other ones we agreed upon as well. Now let's get into some of the things that we would disagree upon. Um, and let me read you, if I could, uh, a quote, and it's in Matthew Barrett's book. He, he uh, quotes D.A. Carson. And, you know, beginning of all his chapters and like Brooke said earlier, you know, he commended the book. I would commend it to you as well. And he, he, he and I land in the same spot in terms of the debate, but he says this, or DA Carson says this to discuss the relationships among the persons of the Godhead in terms of authority structures. That's the key phrase there. Authority structures, as we've been taught by our culture to think of authority structures might be hugely misleading. And I think Carson's right. I think, trying to think about the eternal subordination of the, of the son in terms of authority structure is mightily misleading. And I think that's where Ware and Grudem go off track for me. I, I think order is one thing, but order does not assume um, this authority submission um, idea. Make sense? Um, yeah, I, that does make sense to me. That does make sense to me. Yeah. So I just, I think, I think part of what we we're just talking about the term social idea of, you know, we're incorporating our social, social constructs into understanding the Trinity. I think a little bit of that's going on when we understand 
the order of the Trinity as well. We're inserting some of our authoritarian ideas, subordination ideas into that. Um, here, here's, another, here's another quote that I'm just going to give to you. And EFS denies that the sun is ont ontologically subordinate. The sun is only functionally subordinate. Do you agree with that? Yes, I do. I, I, I think I said it earlier, but I would say that there is complete ontological equality um, within, within the Trinity. Yeah. And this is a good point of disagreement here because, because I think you cannot bifurcate between who God is ontologically and who God is functionally. Yes. One reflects the other. And so if ontologically God is not subordinate, if the son is not subordinate to the father, then functionally that's going to be the case as well, especially when we talk about eternity. Yeah. I, you know, I, I, had a professor at Midwestern who who commented on some of my beliefs and said, uh, you actually, he said, you cannot separate the ontology, which by the way, if you don't know ontology, ontology means the essence. So you, you can't separate the ontology and will and the divine. Uh, they are one and the same. So you have to present a convincing argument. This is what he said. To present a convincing argument that ontology and will can be separated. So that that's definitely a, a point of contention. I don't see logically how that can be true. And I do see historically that ontology and, uh, and, and economy or ontology and will are, are distinctly talked about within the Trinity. Um, for instance, you look at John Owen and his, his doctrine of the Trinity had clearly separated the ontology and in other words, the essence yeah. um, and the economy, which is how God works outwardly. Um, so I'm glad you brought up John Owen because you know how we talked about Augustine, how both sides of, of both sides of the camp use Augustine. Mm -hmm. The same thing with John Owen. Yeah. So let absolutely. me go ahead and just read something from Barrett, who's quoting John Owen. But he's he's what what where you use John Owen to support your position, <laughs> right? We have we have Barrett who's going to quote John Owen to support his position. So uh, here it is. Uh, John Owen says that the persons are undivided in their quote undivided in their operations acting all by the same will, the same wisdom, the same power. Every person, therefore, is the author of every work of God, because each person is God, and the divine nature is the same undivided principle of all divine operations. And this ariseth, riseth, using the little King James there, from the unity of the persons in the same essence. And then he goes on to note, and I'll close with this. Notice, Barrett says, Owen does not exclude power, one in will, the persons act by the same power. Just as a son is not lesser glory, so too the son is not lesser power. That is something EFS cannot say. And I think he's right. When, when, you, when you all of a sudden functionally say that the son is, not, is eternally subordinate to the father, then you are also saying he is not as powerful as the father. And, the other, and I'll let you comment after, after I say this one thing. And I think the other thing that EFS folks need to really work out is is this is the son all of a sudden of lesser glory than the father? That's another wrestling you got to contend with. Yeah, Sean, I'll, I don't think that you believe that sub that subordination implies a lesser glory or lesser power. Yeah. Um, if you did, I, I think that uh, that that would be that would be heretical because you believe that the son was subordinate to the father while he was on earth in his incarnation. And so, if if you did believe that, then I believe you would have to say in the incarnation. That Christ had lesser glory and lesser power, um, and, I, and I believe that is the kenosis heresy. 
I don't believe. Well, so God that's when Christ. we get into it's like Philippians two. In humility, Jesus emptied himself. But notice like that Jesus' humility comes first before the emptying. And so that's where the kenosis controversy kind of kind of gets into. But we're not talking about Jesus on earth. We're talking about eternally. And that's a different conversation. The 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 thing that I'm trying to point out that and this is I think an important point for me, the, how I've come to my beliefs, is some who because pretty much all Christians will agree that Christ was subordinate to the Father on earth. Correct. We've covered that. Absolutely. We'll say, we'll say Christ was subordinate while he was on earth and then say subordination, subordination implies ontological inequality, a lesser glory, a lesser power um, or authority. But I don't think that you can hold both of those views and, and maintain orthodoxy. Because if subordination does mean those things and you believe in subordination, uh, then you believe that Christ emptied himself of his glory, of his power, of his authority. Um, and, I, and, I, and I don't believe that that is consistent with, with historical Christianity. Um, so I, I don't believe, I don't believe that subordination in the, in, just in the, in the incarnation um, or eternally, because I believe that they were using the same word. We define them the same way. I don't believe that either of them imply a lesser glory or lesser power. Um, I'm not, I, I don't want to, I don't know what other eternal subordination proponents have said. Um, yeah, sure. If they've said that, then I, then I absolutely disagree with them. Yeah. Um, but, but I, I wholeheartedly believe that Christ, Christ's subordination to the father um, is not in any way giving him lesser power. Christ is sovereign over all. Um, Christ is, a, is the creator of all and sustainer of all creation. And I, and I believe that his glory is not a lesser glory. I don't believe that the glory of the Holy Spirit is a lesser glory. Um, and I don't believe that that was true on earth, but I do believe that on earth that he's still submitted to the Father's will. And I believe that the Father still sent the Son and the Holy Spirit. And I believe the Son sent the Holy Spirit. Um, and yet, and I, and I believe this, the, 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 that the, they still send the Holy Spirit. Um, but I believe that there's, there's complete equality and glory and power, um, even while there is a subordination in the, in the economy of the yeah. Trinity. So, if, but I think that makes sense, I guess. Yeah. Is that, is that, an, a, does that make sense as an argument? Yeah, it makes sense. I, I, it absolutely makes sense as an argument. I think where, where my head goes is, is in terms of the eternal nature of the conversation, not the um, agreed upon point of the conversation, which is at the incarnation, the son did subordinate himself to the father in his earthly ministry the question becomes when you start using language of subordination in general, and you talk about that throughout eternity, right? Um, is is Christ? Is it a lesser power or glory? It seems to implicate that, and I and I think you can read it that way as well when you use such strong language as a subordination, and um, that's where I, I'd push back. And I understand that what you were saying about the kenosis issue on, on the earthly ministry. But I'm even just stepping back even further and just kind of taking a bigger picture of what's the how does this inform the greater debate of the eternal subordination of the Son? Uh, so, Brooks, there's um, a particular passage in uh, the New Testament that you hang your hat on in terms of, of holding to an eternal uh, functional subordination of the Son, and it's 1 Corinthians 15. Do you want to explain that? Yeah, yeah. So I, I'll just read 1 Corinthians 15, but I'll say this is the passage that I think ESS proponents will stand on most as an argument for eternal subordination. And it is, it is the passage that has um, formed my view for me to reject eternal subordination. It, it's for me, 
um, seems like I'm, I'm rejecting this passage. So I'll read it here. Then comes the end when Christ hands over the kingdom to God, the father, when he abolishes all rule and all authority and all power for he must reign until he puts all his enemies under his feet for God has put everything under his feet. Now, when it says everything it is, is put under him, under Christ, it is obvious that he who puts everything under him is the exception. In other words, so everything is put under Christ's feet, um, but, the, but God, who is the one who put everything under Christ's feet, is the exception. When everything is subject to Christ, then the son himself will also sub, uh, be subject to the one who subjected everything to him so that God may be all in all. So the reason that this passage is important and I think unique um, is that an argument can be made that most of the passages we talked about earlier, for instance, in the gospel of John and the, and the gospel of Mark have an incarnational context. They're talking about Jesus on earth. I would say two, um, one more context for that. It's talking about the incarnation or it's, it's in the shadow of the cross. Yeah. And so the context is certainly his first, the first advent of Christ, his incarnation and everything that took place in his earthly ministry. And so with this passage, I don't see at all how this can have an incarnational context, unless by incarnation, you mean um, that this is referring to Jesus's human nature and not his divine nature. Right. Which um, is that, what, you know, pr proponents on my side would say. Um, I think that this has more of an eschatological, uh, um, what's the word? Context eschatological than, uh, perspective, eschatological yeah. feel, nature. If, if anything, but this, this seems to speak to an eternal reality. Yeah. Um, because it doesn't, there's no end to this. There's no end to Christ's uh, rule. There's no end to the kingdom of God when, uh, when Christ hands over the kingdom to God the Father. Right. Um, there's no end to, to the, the rule and authority and power being abolished. There's no end to Christ's enemies being under his feet. Once they're under his feet, they're, they're under his feet forever. Mm -hmm. um, and, and to me, this just provides a very clear, a very clear teaching from Paul. Like, some sometimes you can look at a passage and you can say, you know, maybe this is just a little too unclear for me to actually build a theology upon, right? Like, I don't, I don't want to build on 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 shifty ground. I don't want to build on something yeah. I don't fully understand. Um, this, t at least to me, doesn't doesn't seem like one of those passages. It seems to me to be very clear. God has put everything under His feet, and when it says everything is put under His feet, um, it's obvious that He who puts everything under Him uh, is the exception. It's obvious that, that that God is not under Christ's feet, and every while everything this is the, the key word here. While everything else is subject to Christ, then the Son, that's the Son Himself, will be subject to the one who subjected everything to Him, so that God may be all in all. Yeah. So I'm gonna I'm gonna be uh, two things. One, I'm gonna make a point where I think the strength of the biblical argument is with me, but also I think it's good to be critical of your own arguments so that you understand. Uh, the holes. I, I do think that the majority of New Testament scripture speaks about the subordination of the Son in regards to the earthly life and ministry of Jesus Christ. And I think it's just so crystal clear. And I think imposing eternal subordination onto the earthly ministry of Jesus Christ is a horrible hermeneutical mistake. So that'd be my first point that I would make big picture. So, I, so all that to say, I think if you had balanced scales, the weight of scripture that talks about subordination of the son that we agree upon at the incarnation is with his earthly ministry. Now, the point I would make that I made this to you and I made it to Logan in the past. The one, the one point that I wrestle with is this passage. 
because it is eschatological in nature, I think. It is talking about what's to come, looking forward, what, what is God going to do? It's Book of Revelation, you know, type thinking, right? And I, and I, and I do think for those who hold my position, half the rest wrestle with this passage. Like, what do you do with that? Are we just talking about his human nature, the human nature of Jesus Christ? I mean, is it, is, you know, how, how do you, how do you, how do you wrestle with that? And I think that's important. And, and I think the, you know, the greatest hole in the argument for, on my side of the debate is the eschatological idea of Jesus coming back, you know, his second advent, right? He's coming back and, and, and this, you know, we got this in the future, this, um, this garden city, right? This, this eschatological future, you know, how does God function that now? Now I, you know, what ontologically speaking, what's going on now, when I, when I have these conversations in my mind, I go back to um, God and all eternity, you know, before Genesis one, one and God cannot change. And so I'm trying to work forwards and work backwards in order to work forwards, you know? And so I, the admission or the, the acknowledgement is that this particular passage is definitely the hangup, uh, but I also think there's ways to think about it that, that, that basically help explain what's going on here. Yeah, that makes sense. I think just along the same lines, though, off the topic of this passage, um, there are things that people who would, who would, who would identify as eternal subordinationists believe that I definitely do not believe at all. Mm. Um, and they might say that they are logically uh, like following from the idea of eternal subordination, but I, I completely disagree with them. Mm-hmm. Um, so you and I both take it. If I'm, unless I misunderstand, I think you and I both take moderate positions, but on different sides. So yeah. I, I take a pretty moderate position, but I, I fall on, on the side of eternal subordination and, and you don't. Yeah. Yeah. For me, it's just the biblical evidence just isn't there for the eternal subordination of the son. But, but that's why this type of conversation is just really healthy. You know, hopefully those listening in, you know, hopefully you don't have a rock in your shoe and you're just upset because, you know, we're not hard one way or the other. Um, yeah. I, we, if it makes you feel any better, I'm rarely moderate about anything. I'm fairly opinionated yeah. and uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, you should, pretty heavily on one side or the other. <laughs> yeah, no doubt. And, you know, my, my, I was, I've always been on the fence on the issue until I read Barrett's book. And then I like you've read different articles. I've read where, you know, when I was in seminary, read plenty of where and his view of the Trinity and Grudem and all that kind of stuff. I've taught systematic theology at our church. So I'm well aware of all the arguments that are out there. Um, but, but for me, some of the, from the, some of the rationale from the where camp, the Grudem camp just falls short. And this is where yeah, having the conversation could... with you is really helpful because you bring nuance to the conversation. Yeah. If, in fact, I would say, Every time I read an argument against subordination, and, and I've read at least a dozen hmm. uh, works on it, um, they almost go exclusively after Bruce Ware um, and his writings on eternal subordination. And it's because, if I, can, if I can say it while being charitable to Bruce Ware, I think he goes too far, and I think he is very uncareful with the language that he uses. Hmm. Um, and so if you are listening to this and you're wanting to read more or trying to go look at both positions, I'd, I would say probably don't start with Bruce Ware for the pro eternal subordination position. Yeah. Um, he's definitely has a functional hierarchy. Um, he, like you said, he's not careful with his language and I don't know the guy, so I don't want to. That's, yeah, that's him. what I, I'm not I'm always even, uncomfortable, but I don't know him. And I'm, I'm to be, to be honest, I'm not very familiar with his other work. Right. So I don't want to, I don't want to come hard at the, at this brother, but yeah, yeah exactly. But yeah. 
but here's here's what here's why his his name and Grudem are important, and they're kind of like the godfathers of this debate, at least in modern evangelicalism, right? They're the ones who are like everyone's pointing to and reading, and so like you have to talk about their positions because it's from them that other people are nuancing their position on the on the conversation. So it is necessary that we bring them up, but also acknowledge that you know from them you can you can nuance a ton and still hold to extremely orthodox positions on the debate. Fair enough. Yes, fair, fair. So, man, that was good. That was a helpful conversation. And, you know, honestly, and I was just in my mind right now, just kind of going through the different points that Barrett makes in Simply Trinity. He talks so much. Like, he, he uses some language that we just didn't even get into, like um, the imminent Trinity. Uh, what does that even mean? You know, and obviously, we've talked a little bit about the economy of the Trinity or the functional aspects of the Trinity. What is that? How does that all? It, I would say go read Barrett if you want a fuller discussion on it. And even like you, you read Barrett, you read some chapters where on the eternal subordination where you disagreed. But I think the strength in reading Barrett is that you get a, you get a, I think a strong view from my, from my camp, but I also think you can read and say, okay, this is where I would disagree with Barrett on a few points, just like you did. Yeah. Yeah. Read, read critically as, as you would with anything Absolutely. that you read, I'm guessing, And we'll, we'll um, but definitely point. read Barrett. Yeah, definitely read Barrett. The, the thing at his book as a whole was very helpful and very, very needed because we've lost, man. I'll just say this, the, the doctrine of the Trinity is so important and foundational to all Christian theology. And we do not talk about it anymore. No, we don't. It's so annoying because who like the, the understanding that Christians today have of the Trinity is so lacking compared to, so so many eras and, and groups throughout church history it's such an important doctrine when it comes to the christian faith so go study the trinity and in matthew barrett's book is helpful because it dives in to different doctrines probably places you've never even thought of um, yeah, in ways that the church yeah. has always been talking about the about the about the trinity um so so study the trinity study augustine go read de trinitate hmm. read and go read, Owen. read matthew barrett yeah Go read John Owen if you um, have an IQ of 180, yeah. and if you have an IQ of 50. Read my read my blog post. <laughs> yeah. And I would, I'm um, also going to link to uh, Kevin DeYoung's article. I think he did it on the Gospel Coalition. Yeah, it was on TGC. That's that's a good article. It's a great article, and he and he and he holds my position. It seems he's being very charitable to to wear and, and Grudem, but he's basically making the point in that article, which I'll link below, that the reformers did not hold to an eternal subordination of the son. And it's not the classic reform position. So I'll, I'll, for those who are interested in the connection of church history and, you know, what were the, uh, you know, reformers yeah. thinking, we'll, uh, we'll link that. Any, so, other, any other thoughts, man? I, I, you want, you can say a few things before I close out or I can just shut you off now. Yeah. I, you know, I'll just end with saying uh, this, no matter where you're at in the conversation, be very careful that you, uh, that you do not in any way imply that Christ is of lesser glory or lesser power than the father yeah. Christ and the, uh, the father, son, and Holy spirit are equal in glory and majesty. And, uh-huh. uh, and if, if you believe or hold to eternal subordination and it leads you to a lesser view of Christ, then you have completely missed the entire point of the doctrine. Um, if anything, this is my personal belief. I, I think it points to a deeper glory um, of, of God and, and, a, and a very deeply uh, amazing reality we see in the scriptures. So, if you if you agree with me on eternal subordination, I think that's what I. If you don't agree with me, then you know I guess you don't have to worry about any of that. But 
Um, but yeah, that, that's just what I would say uh, to just to close yeah. it out. Um, actually, ca- can I read this quote from John Calvin that I've included in my blog post? Yeah, I go thought for it was it. really good quote. He said, I think we ought to speak of God with the same religious caution that should govern our thoughts of him. How can the infinite essence of God be defined by the narrow capacity of the human mind? How can the human mind, by its own efforts, penetrate into an examination of the essence of God when it's totally ignorant of its own? Hmm. It's Calvin basically saying, you don't even understand yourself. <laughs> You're trying to understand God. <laughs> you know? Um, so, so just be humble in this. Um, if anything, yeah. the church history can act as guardrails to keep you from moving into horrible places. 100%. Um, because yeah. because church history, we, we've seen the heresies. We've seen Sibelianism. We've seen Arianism. We've seen uh, tritheism. You know, subordinationism. Subordinationism, yeah. So all the isms that exist in terms of church history, um, are, are those who have went before us have dealt with these. And so, yeah, I think that it is guardrails. And so I think it is good, one, we, are, we subject ourselves to the authority and the sufficiency of Scripture. And then two, we learn from others and how, and their hermeneutics in terms of understanding the debate. And so uh, a couple of things I'll end with, I think, I think when you want to begin to tackle this debate, the oneness of God, I think you begin there. That's something Barrett brings out. I think that's what the church fathers did. They, they want to understand what does it mean for God to be one? And so that'd be the first thing I would say. Second thing I said at the very beginning, language matters. And so if you're able to understand a very basic level of Greek language, especially as they were you know, wrestling in the fourth century, and the Council of Nicaea, that's extremely helpful in terms of beginning to get your mind around the Trinity. Now, are we finite be- beings who can't comprehend, you know, everything about God? 100%. But I hope you're willing to wrestle and to understand who God is. And, and in particular, as our conversation has gone about the, I would say, the uh, not eternal subordination of the Son, <laughs> and you would say the eternal subordination of the Son. So, uh, there's more we can say. This is this 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 conversation, this debate could go on for another three four hours, and then we'd probably get a meal. Then we have the debate a little bit longer. So, uh, we we really some errors, not errors, but things that we could even get into is, is quoting more scripture that we could talk around. That's that's there. More church historians, that's there as well. Getting into some of the nuance of language, that's there. We just can't hit it all in one particular podcast. But my hope is that we've provided you, the listener, with some resources uh, to go after and to read. And uh, hopefully that begins to stoke your thoughts and uh, diving into who God is. So thank you, Brooks, for joining me. I'm really glad we were able to do this. Yeah, you know, Sean, I appreciate you letting me join because I really, I really enjoy it in the conversation. So I, I appreciate it. And if people want to get a hold of you um, or if they want to learn more about you, where can they, where can they go? Uh, Brookssays.com. So B-R-O-O-K-S-S-A-Y-S.com. You can just, that's my website. If you want to look at whatever, anything, I guess that I do. <laughs> yeah, I, absolutely. And of course, um, for all the content, including more podcasts and blogs, go to cornfieldtheology.com. Uh, we are constantly Corn Cornfield Theology. Started out as a podcast between you and I. Now it's evolved into something a little bit, a little bit broader in terms of um, content. Yeah. And we hope it's a blessing to everyone who's able to engage it. So that is it for now. That was a fun conversation. I appreciate it. I love the thing about theology, especially getting into the weeds and the nuances of some of this stuff. So thanks for being my guest, Brooks. And uh, I love you, man. And I'm grateful for you. Thanks, sir. All right, everybody. Have a great day. God bless. Bye-bye. 
You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about Redemption Hill Church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org.